Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions. It's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Mask podcast. This is the Anesthesia Alchemy edition, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Join hosts Gary Bridges and Terry Wicks as they deep dive into today's most important clinical conversations in a unique but educational way, in a humorous balance that only they can achieve. Let today's journey begin. Here are Terry and Gary with your next installment of Anesthesia Alchemy. Three, two, one. Hey, good day to all our listeners, and welcome back to another great episode of Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged. I'm Terry, and alongside me is my esteemed co-host and colleague, Gary Bridges. Hey, thank you, Terry. Today, we're embarking on a journey into the heart of some of the very most challenging and critical issues in the profession of anesthesia today. Our goal is to shed some light on the often overlooked topic of the second victim in anesthesia providers the clandestine world of diversion of controlled substances, PTSD, and the point struggle against substance use disorder. That's right, Gary, you hit it right on the head. And you know, normally we color our discussions with a little humor and charm, but today's topic is really a little bit more serious. We're gonna take a different approach. Because, you know, we're really aware as leaders in our profession of the gravity of these matters and the impact that they have on both the individuals uh, who are caring for patients who are the second uh, victims in some of these uh, tragic events and who are at risk for substance abuse disorder and PTSD and then the threat to the healthcare system as a whole. Uh, Indeed, Terry. Our aim is to really explore the emotional and professional toll that anesthesia providers do incur and our silent heroes in those operating rooms that they often endure on a daily basis. So we're going to delve into the challenges that they face as they navigate the aftermath of difficult cases, grappling with their experiences as the second victim. And that that ranges anything from an intraoperative death, even something as simple as a medication error that may have not had any impact on, on the patient at all. But, you know, these subtle oversights, I think it's safe to say, Terry, that, you know, anesthesia providers, specifically CRNAs, perhaps may have a little bit of a type A personality. Gary, you know, you hit the nail on the head and anesthesia providers, we're kind of a unique culture. Uh, We're a little bit of uh, novelty seeking, we like excitement, fast pace. Uh, and that really is a setup for us to get into problems with diversion of controlled substances. And these drugs, which are so, so critical for providing good anesthesia care, 
can find themselves in the in the wrong hands and lead to devastating consequences, both for providers and patients. We're going to take a hard look at the implications and the urgent need for solution to some of these problems. Yeah, Terry, and as we get along through perhaps maybe not this program specifically, but subsequent uh, episodes, we're gonna we're gonna bring in some people to share some of those stories of of you know their experiences and hopefully shed a light on some hope and uh, perhaps even some resilience that providers might be able to to glean from some of these episodes that we're about to put out to you, um, our listeners, as we discuss anesthesia providers who have perhaps confronted substance use disorders themselves head-on, seeking help. And actually, you know, at least it's been my experience in, in some of the ones that I've dealt with, have actually emerged a lot stronger as individuals as well as providers. So these narratives will remind us of the, you know, indomitable spirit of those who dedicate their lives to patient care. All right. So, so dear listeners, please uh, stay with us as we work through today's episode. It may seem somber at times, uh, but it is a testament to the importance of addressing these issues. Uh, and we hope that by shining a light on these topics, and particularly at this holiday season, which can be so emotionally charged, that we can help contribute to the understanding uh, and support of our anesthesia providers uh, at this critical time of the year. Absolutely, Terry. So we encourage you, our listen, listeners, to join in this reflective and meaningful conversation for anesthesia providers. And together, we can raise awareness, foster empathy, and work towards a brighter, safer future in the practice or the field of anesthesia. So stay right with us as we walk down this essential and introspective journey on anesthesia alchemy. Terry and Gary, unplug. All right. Today, we're delving into a subject that's often overlooked, but holds significant weight in the healthcare profession. We're talking about that impact of critical incidents on healthcare providers and specifically anesthesia providers like CRNAs. It's an issue that touches to the very core of every anesthesia provider's well-being. That's right, Gary. The severity of stress related to a critical incident isn't a one-size-fits-all phenomenon. It's influenced by a complex interplay of a variety of factors. Personal interpretation of the event, how serious it's perceived to be, the duration of the exposure, maybe even pre-existing coping strategies, and the support system that's available to the provider. And as we all know, the way people experience and cope with the same incident can vary dramatically from individual to individual. Oh, absolutely, Terry. You know, folks, when a critical event occurs, it can unleash a whirlwind of emotions that can overwhelm even the most resilient anesthesia providers or individuals that we know. This is why healthcare providers involved in these types of incidents are often referred to as the second victim. They're not just impacted by the event itself, but also by the consequences that it actually has on the primary victims or the patients themselves. Yeah, and the emotional toll can just be immense. Feelings of guilt, shame, distress, anger, isolation often rear their heads in the workplace. And these healthcare heroes who dedicate their lives to the caring for others find themselves grappling with the aftermath of events that they couldn't prevent or control. Yeah, Terry. And you know, it doesn't stop there. These symptoms can seep into every facet of these individuals' lives. Not only that, they can reduce their work performance. They can lead to burnout, disrupt their sleep patterns, which then 
creates and causes difficulties in concentration, perhaps increasing things like alcohol consumption or other chemicals. And it's got this cascading event that can actually lead these individuals and have them contemplate even a career change. They can even develop PTSD and or they could actually spiral into substance use disorder or SUD. And, you know, Gary, it's really important to understand that these reactions are normal and acceptable. And if any of us have ever had a, a bad outcome in the OR, you know, we do we take that very personally. And um, so, you know, there's no one size fits all approach to coping with these critical incidents. We're all individuals and everyone experiences them a little bit different. And so every person's journey is unique and we really have to respect that. Indeed, Terry. So our aim today is really to shed light on that challenging aspect of the healthcare profession, anesthesia providers, and emphasize the importance of providing support both within our healthcare community or our anesthesia departments and beyond. Uh, programs, you know, are typically created or implemented as a reaction to an event versus being proactive to make sure that we actually have the sort support system in place before it even happens. And perhaps that might even mitigate um, some of these things that we are witnessing today in healthcare. So, you know, we're inviting our listeners to come along with us on this solemn but essential conversation and acknowledge the impact of critical incidents on healthcare providers. We can foster empathy, build stronger support systems, and work towards a healthier and more resilient healthcare workforce if we work together. So let's begin by talking about acute traumatic stress. This is something that can hit soon after a critical incident, and it doesn't discriminate between work and home life. It can cast a long shadow affecting one's quality of life in many profound ways. Indeed, Terry. Symptoms of acute traumatic stress can be haunting, can cause people to have sleep disturbances that rob these individuals, like CRNAs, of restorative rest, which is, which is critical for every one of us. It can then lead into things like withdrawal from the world, whether that be at home, whether that be in social uh, environments, as well as the workplace. And that can lead to sharp declines in concentration, which then we now start to see the domino effect. They, these individuals that are impacted, they change in how they interact with others, coworkers. They may actually even fall into various forms of depression, anxiety, and even resort to excessive use of substances, whether they're illegal or even things like alcohol consumption as a coping mechanism for these challenges that they're experiencing. All right, this isn't just a laundry list or a bunch of checkboxes, Gary. This is real. These are real struggles that individuals face when they're dealing with the aftermath of a traumatic incident. And it's vital that we recognize these reactions are not signs of weakness, but rather the natural response of the human psyche to an extraordinary, stressful, threatening event. Yeah, and Terry, you know, certainly in my experience, and I've, I've had numerous experiences, not myself, but managing people that have gone through these events, if the trauma isn't appropriately addressed in a timely manner, the risk of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, looms extremely large in the practice of anesthesia for nurse anesthetists. PTSD is a formidable adversary characterized by clinical significant distress syndromes that persist for more than a month. Uh, it can result in permanent disability and further hamper a CRNA's ability to deliver optimal anesthesia care to patients. 
Yeah, Gary, you know, you're right. PTSD doesn't just affect the individual. It has a ripple effect on the entire healthcare system and the lives of our CRNAs that work with that individual who's experiencing PTSD. Addressing these issues head on is not just about the individual's well-being, but about ensuring that the continued safety and the quality of care that they provide for their patients. Yeah, so our mission today is twofold. It's to shed light on the critical individual effects and it's to emphasize the importance of early intervention and support for our anesthesia colleagues and, and specifically CRNAs. And together, we can actually break the stigma, which is profound, that surrounds the mental health in the healthcare field, as well as create a more compassionate and resilient community among our anesthesia team members. So we're going to invite all of our listeners to join with us in this crucial conversation. And by understanding the impact of traumatic stress and PTSD, we can take the first steps towards healing and empowerment for healthcare providers. And Gary, we've often talked about the supportive environment that CRNAs and SRNAs provide to patients during their understanding and recovery. But it's a fundamental part of our practice. However, today we have to shift our focus to the anesthesia professionals themselves who may find themselves in need of similar support as they navigate their own personal coping process. Indeed, Terry. Crisis interventions play a pivotal role in ensuring that all victims impacted by a critical incident receive the help that they need. So it's not just limited to CRNAs. There's the entire operating room team, as well as the patient, as well as their family members. This support is not just a nicety, it's a necessity. It's about understanding and normalizing the emotional reactions that actually follow such incidents and preventing the long-term consequences that happen, whether that be with the patient or family members, but more specifically, the CRNA themselves. And one of the things that we don't want them to fall into is any form of post-traumatic stress disorder. And these interventions encompass a range of strategies and they can be implemented either on a one-to-one -one basis or in small groups. Debriefing sessions provide a safe space to pro process the events and emotions. And while counseling offers professional guidance in managing the aftermath itself. Screening for the need for longer-term therapy helps identify those individuals who may require ongoing support. And Terry, when necessary, those referrals for further mental health treatment ensure that that individual CRNA receives the specialized care that they need to heal and regain their equilibrium. And I'll, I'll just add a little bit too, is, is to note that Terry and I are not mental health workers at all, and but, you know, there are some elements that, you know, all of us should have a baseline knowledge of, which is really one of the intents here today, which our subsequent episodes will get a lot more deeper into. Gary, it's important to emphasize that seeking help is not a sign of weakness, but it really is a testament to the strength and self-awareness that we all need to possess. The healthcare community is built on a foundation of mutual support, and this extends to the well-being of those who care for others as well. So to all of you listeners, we want to underscore the significance and the impact of these interventions. So by recognizing and addressing traumatic responses faced by second victims like CRNAs, we can pave the way for healing, developing resilience, and continued excellence in patient care that these CRNAs do typically provide on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So Gary, have you ever had to help a fellow CRNA as a second victim? Yes, Terry. I've had uh, to manage a number uh, of ranges of second victims, multiple events, that is, in plural. Uh, and, I, and I'll just share a brief story. Uh, it's about 15 years ago, you know, complex case that one of my CRNAs was performing. It was a long day. It was a 14, 16-hour case. You know, and this CRNA, just to kind of give you a bit of background, is not just type A, but extremely, extremely meticulous and detailed in all the work that they do, as well as um, her physician colleague that she was working with. They finish the case. They bring that patient up to the ICU. You know, the night closes down, and I come in the next morning, typically quite early, and I'm reviewing the schedule as I'm running the operating room, and I get this phone call uh, from the ICU that that patient from that room the prior day had passed away. And it was uh, pretty traumatic. It was uh, pontine paralysis, so that was from a correction of sodium too quickly. So this CRNA comes in the next morning, and her habit is come in very early. These large cases, she, she is uh, very sort of vigilant in making sure that she follows up with them. And uh, this very morning, she tells me, you know, I'm going to set up my room, then I'm going to go up and see the patient uh, from last night and uh, see how they're doing and how they're recovering, etc. And then I was sort of at an impasse. I kind of realized the boundaries of sort of my leadership skill set that morning because I had nothing to offer other than to tell her the patient didn't make it. It was a very young patient. And then also being able to say that you are not going to go into clinical care today. And uh, those were two real things that I still struggle with today that I wasn't providing a, an opportunity or a resource um, for that individual because I didn't know what to do. Um, I did tell her that the patient didn't make it, gave her some of the detail. And um, she broke down and she started weeping in front of me. And um, I didn't know what to say other than to try to console her and comfort her that you know it wasn't, wasn't related to her. And... I let her go back into clinical care, and I still struggle to this day um, with that decision because it was the wrong decision. I should not have let her go back into clinical care uh, because I could see that it was impacting her. The gravity of that experience started me down the road of, okay, I have an opportunity to learn here as a leader and as a friend and a peer uh, to my colleague to make sure that every single CRNA that I work with uh, is looked out for, as well as our physicians, our surg- our physician anesthesiologists, our surgeons, the nurses, etc. And so that started um, the sort of beginnings of a program for managing critical incident stress response to events like this. And, you know, a couple of months went by, a year went by, and as we were starting to develop these programs, At state meetings and national meetings, we would have some of these lectures, and they were closed-door lectures, but I would bring her in, and as I would tell the audience about sort of the second victim and how important it is that programs, etc., and I start to tell them that story, and people are kind of like, oh my God, and then I introduce the CRNA to share that story, and 
the feelings that um, she was going through. And that was sort of my opportunity to sort of give her a chance to share how she was feeling, hoping that that would help with the healing. Um, it was an environment of anesthesia peers, so there was a lot of sharing of similar experiences. So I think, you know, I remember after that first meeting she come to speak to to share her experiences, it was clear that it was helping her heal because now she had other CRNA colleagues she could talk to um, that had similar experiences and share the same feelings. You know, and then obviously we all offered other resources and stuff, uh, employee health and, and whatnot, but I did a series of check-ins uh, because it forced me to go back and say like, is there a program to help our, our, our colleagues out with? So that was probably the most profound one because it impacted me so much because I felt um, ill-prepared as a CRNA leader in my role. Um, and I feel like I felt I failed uh, my staff. And um, so we made those changes and I think it's been successful. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I got story after story on these types of things. And I think when you have a program together, you know, like today, we're stepping into the realm of, of preparation, a phase that is often underestimated, but uh, certainly vital when it comes to these critical events. And so, you know, when we talk about pre-crisis preparation stages, folks, if you have something in place, it is definitely a game changer. Um, when you don't have something in place, I'll be the first to admit, I failed. And, um, you know, but I didn't sit around and, and kind of dwell about it. Um, the fact that, you know, I wasn't able to offer something. I went out, sought it, and tried to help develop programs and implement programs. It's a game changer if you've, if you've got something in place. Yeah, and you really have to have a program in place before a critical incident occurs uh, so that you've got the equipment and the tools at your disposal and you have the knowledge and maybe even the experience to handle whatever comes our way because these incidents do occur and they can have a devastating effect. And when we've got a well-stocked toolbox to implement and to draw from, it can really make a difference um, when these unexpected challenges occur in the clinical arena. Absolutely, Terry. You know, in the pre-crisis preparation stage, you know, we're talking about stress management, stress resistance education, and it's about understanding how stress works at its very core. Uh, you know, it impacts every single one of us, our bodies, our minds, and learning how to navigate that, you know, it's like navigating the stormy seas. I mean, it sometimes is uncontrollable, um, but we, you know, need that first layer of resilience and understanding, and then, you know, we start building it out from there. Yeah, this reminds me, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing to say, you know, the old saying, in a, in a code, you should take your own pulse first, right? <laughs> because you really have to get grounded in order to, do, to, to be an effective provider. So it just doesn't stop there, Gary, what you were talking about. We've also got to consider relaxation techniques, those little gems that can help us find uh, the calm in, in the middle of the storm and, and to ground ourselves. So you think about deep breathing, mindfulness, and, you know, maybe sometimes just an old-fashioned cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, let's not forget about developing and strengthening our coping skills. You know, life, 
especially anesthesia, throws us curveballs at all of us. And it's essential to have that solid defense strategy and resiliency. You know, this phase really helps us build our resilience muscles so that we can actually bounce back from adversity like critical events in the operating room. Yeah, and it's not just about professionals in healthcare. You know, these skills are universal. Uh, they're for anyone who wants to be better prepared for some of life's ups and downs and the curveballs that get thrown at us. Uh, and that includes uh, all of our listeners out there today. That's right, Terry. So to all of you out there listening to this podcast, we encourage you yourself, as well as anyone in your practice, your coworkers, to embrace you know, these types of pre-crisis preparation phases as an opportunity to empower not only yourself, but those around you in the workplace. It's about taking charge of your well-being and becoming better equipped to face all of those events that are unexpected that you're going to confront. And certainly in the times of crisis, it's vital to have a plan in place to support those that are affected. I'm living proof of that, that I didn't have a plan in place and I was lost. If you're in a leadership position specifically, whether you're a chief CRNA, a manager, assistant chief CRNA, a director of anesthesia service, et cetera, you know, I think that's one of the pieces of the toolkits that while we can talk about leadership skill sets and whatnot, but your active application, this is one of those critical ones. And that's where the acute crisis stage stages of intervention comes into play, an immediate response to assess reactions and provide the guidance to your peers that you're leading, your coworkers during these turbulent periods. So let's, yeah, let's go right back to the beginning and let's talk about uh, demobilization and consultation. Uh, that intervention occurs immediately after the incident. That's where we need to start. And it's like throwing a lifeline to those people that are involved. Maybe just last to 10 or 15 minutes, but it's led by a person of authority, maybe the department director, the lead on that day. Uh, and the aim is to help individuals understand and manage their preliminary reactions to that untoward event that may be uh, getting them off their equilibrium. You know, right, Terry, you know, after this brief session that, that Terry's talking about, you know, all parties are really encouraged to take a 20-minute breather before returning to work. And and I would submit you'd have to, you know, weigh that on the gravity of what's going on. Certainly in some cases, pulling a provider from clinical duties for the remainder of the day may be the best option. As an anesthesia provider, uh, you know, attention will not be the focus on the patient rather than the stressful incident. So I think anyone that sort of, you know, back in the day it was, oh, I'm fine, you know, buck up, get in there, let's grind it, grind it. That is no longer what we should be doing. Without question, living testament. You know, it's about giving people a moment to collect themselves, process what just happened, and really allow them to, to you know, find their footing. And, I, and I'll give an example. You know, once we put a program in place, this was one of those immediate pieces that we executed. We went in, helped sort of our colleague clean up sort of in the OR environment. And then what we do is we have our staff, so the CRNAs, the physicians, self-identify who they want on a peer group. And what we do is we mobilize those peers to take that person away from the clinical environment, go for a coffee, 
and just kind of let them vent what went wrong, what went really well, um, and let them process. Have found over the years that that's been very, very impactful. Yeah. So you know, we've talked earlier about the the initial demobilization and the consultation that that first ten or fifteen minutes after the event uh, to really help that person get their feet on the ground. But then, as you said, Gary, we need to have a longer diffusing session. Uh, maybe takes an hour. Uh, should be led by maybe the department director or the team leader for that day and give that person an opportunity to really work through the details of what happened and to provide, uh, let them talk about their emotions and, and what they're experiencing. And so that we can offer them that crucial support and allows everyone that was involved in the incident to express their concerns about what happened and how they're feeling about the incident at that time or after the initial piece has, has gone by. Yeah. And let's not forget one of the most powerful tools in this phase is the critical incident stress debriefing, which I think you're alluding to, Terry, or CISD. You know, it was originally designed for emergency service workers, and it's highly recommended and frequently used in the healthcare field today. Um, certainly, we've implemented it. And um, i share another story with you. As we were developing this program, one of the things that we do do now is, you know, you, you have your peer go out with that, that CRNA. They go have a quick coffee, kind of clear their head a little bit, you know, collect themselves um, if family uh, is available, we try to get them to meet with the family. That sometimes in, incorporates, um, you know, sometimes the, uh, the chaplain services. And then we mobilize the entire team to literally have a formal debriefing. And it's, you know, it, it can lead up to about an hour. And basically what everybody, everybody gets an opportunity to talk that was involved in that case. And two of the key things are, Number one, what went really, really well in that case? Number two, and you start getting into almost the preliminary components of root cause analysis, what were the challenges in that case? And if you could change things that happened in that case, and then what were the things that really took you by surprise that you had trouble managing and coping? And, you know, that case where the individual died in the ICU you know, I remember when we finally mobilized the team after uh, a period of time, and as we were going around the room, one of the overlooked team members was the circulating nurse, um, was not involved in some of the debriefing, and they broke down. They started weeping in the debrief, and, uh, you know, the, the sort of the temporal time period was probably not quick enough, but the gravity of the fr and the frustration of that nurse um, sort of highlighted the importance of having a formal program in place um, to allow them to participate and share their feelings. You know, the circulator is just as important as the anesthesia provider, the scrub, the surgeon, etc. And um, they were overlooked. And, uh, you know, Really, really important, again, highlighting, you know, sort of the diffusing sessions and, and the debriefing components and how important they are. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com 
your trusted provider for CPC Core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Yeah, and so when we think about the initial response with the demobilization and consultation, and we're going to follow that with the diffusing session, but this critical incident stress briefing is really a structured piece that's meant to accompany the other elements of the model. And it's essential for facilities, hospitals, departments to have these policies in place to intentionally incorporate it. It's a structured supportive session that allows individuals to share their experiences, process their emotions, which is so, so important, and to receive the guidance and support that they need to cope with the aftermath of these critical incidents. It's so, so important. Yeah, Terry, you know, you bring up another really important point. Um, certainly in today when supply and demand of anesthesia providers is highly imbalanced, which then sets up a perfect scenario of a critical incidence to occur, right? Short-staffed, production pressure, the leadership is cracking the whip, got to get more cases done, We get, you know, you get out of a room, you got to go start another case, you know, you can see it already building up. And so we're in high risk right now for these, these things to happen. Now, I would say that my sort of experience and recommendation to those that are in leadership roles is to recognize production pressure. Yes, we're working short-staffed, but when these critical incidents occur, no matter what, you must make time to pull these providers out to allow them to decompress. These interventions are like lifelines. These will help CRNAs navigate these turbulent waters in an acute crisis. It's imperative. And they provide a sense of structure, more importantly, support and understanding during some of the most critical, challenging moments that they've actually encountered in that critical event. So stay with us. Now we're going to invite you to come along as we explore the critical acute crisis stage of intervention. And again, as you're probably starting to understand, we're going to talk about the very acute phase, uh, but this lasts longer than just a day or so. So by understanding these processes, we can better support our colleagues and ourselves in times of need. Next, we're going to embark on a profound exploration of the acute crisis stage of intervention, a critical phase that provides essential support and healing after a traumatic incident. This phase is all about coming together and finding strength as a group. We start with the Critical Incident Stress Debriefing or CISD sessions, and it's a structured group discussion that occurs 
one to three days after the incident involving all the staff from the same discipline and department who were directly impacted. And again, I want to stress, as you could probably pick it up, this is both the immediate care, intermediate care, and care that goes into the days following the incidents. Yeah, Terry, before we go any further, let me ask you, I mean, being in the academic arena, is there any, like this, exactly what you just said, kind of just sets up I can only imagine, you know, nurse anesthesia residents, um, you know, physician residents, um, you know, those that are the learners in the environment. What's your experience been with with sort of our up and coming future CRNAs? Well, I, yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that question because we had this discussion this semester uh, with our, our second year students who are actually in their first year in the operating room. Two of our students had unexpected deaths in the OR, and we talked about it in class, and it was a tearful experience uh, for them. I think they were a little surprised by it. And, you know, if we think back to our experience as ICU nurses, you know, we often take care of patients who, when they come to us, they're critically ill. Um, and over the course of several days, you know, maybe they get septic, they have multi-organ failure, and we're not always surprised when they die. But when a patient dies in the operating room, it's a different animal. You know, we have established a bond with that patient and a commitment to carry them through surgery and to get them safely into recovery. And when that doesn't happen, um, even though it may not be our fault that the patient died, we feel disproportionately responsible for that event when it occurs. And, you know, I can tell you that I spent um, a couple of hours on the telephone uh, when I was on vacation talking to one of our students who had unexpectedly lost a patient. So preparing our students to deal with these kinds of unexpected events, I think, is a fundamental and important part of the the, the professional development and and the the education that we provide to expect the unexpected sometimes and to let them know that they need to reach out and get support be debriefed get out of the operating room that day um, and to recognize that they may have long-term emotional consequences from that unexpected event in the or you bring up some great points because i i think that sometimes that's the easy group to be overlooked very very quickly you know, and so the purpose of this session really is multifold. It really aims to provide closure, alleviate, or at least help mitigate some of the signs and symptoms of acute distress, and assess the need of individuals um, on follow-up. I mean, that's another critical component. So, you know, it's like a collective sigh of relief, you know, a chance to share the burden and begin the healing process because it needs to happen as soon as possible so that we can negate some of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the episode. Absolutely, Gary. You know, and the benefits of the CISD are immense. You know, you have emotional support, uh, improved mental health for everyone involved, for the entire group. Um, people are less likely to leave their jobs. Um, their symptoms are less likely to be manifest or to, to be accentuated. And, and they have better productivity. And it's like you say, it's a lifeline for the entire team, uh, an emotional lifeline, helping them to regain their footing after a traumatic event and begin the healing process which can take um, a long, long time. Absolutely. So it's it's almost like a one-on-one -on -one crisis intervention. You know, this is about providing counseling, 
offering psychological support that's tailored to that individual's needs because we're all different. Uh, you know, throughout the entire uh, spectrum of the crisis that's going on in, for that individual. So the goal is really to guide each person back to the level of functionality that they hopefully um, can uh, return to prior to the critical incidents that they uh, have experienced. It's a personalized lifeline, if you will. Absolutely. And we can't forget about the families. Uh, you know, family critical incident stress management is an important piece of this puzzle. Uh, we can't forget about the, the impact that this has on the family when the uh, family member is lost or maybe doesn't die, but has a terrible complication. So this intervention, this family critical incident stress management is designed to support the family, uh, promote patient provider communication and helps uh, guide everyone towards closure. And it's recognized that this ripple effect of these incidents on loved ones can be profound as well. There's no question that a CRNA that goes through one of these critical incidents without that support and without that understanding, it definitely spills over uh, into home, you know, and we've got a lot of young CRNAs now that are that are getting out there and they are the majority of the profession, you know, so they're starting young families and the last thing we need is to be contributing to the home stress uh, of a growing family of, you know, new home, et cetera, children uh, and whatnot. And so, you know, together, these interventions from a safety net during the acute crisis stage, they provide support, structure, healing during times of great need. So by understanding these interventions, we better support our colleagues, our anesthesia colleagues, and our patients, and our own well-being in the times of crisis that um, ensue. So listeners, stay with us as we explore this essential phase in greater depth. So tell us a little bit more about this acute crisis stage of intervention, Gary. As we continue our exploration of the acute crisis stage of intervention, we'll delve into a topic that is really often overlooked, but profoundly essential you know, and I'm the epitome of that one, um, certainly in my practice over my years of leadership. You know, you require a lot of follow-up and referral for treatment when you identify there's a need there. You know, absolutely. You know, I, I think back on some events that happened early in my anesthesia career. This is like three decades ago. Uh, and they have had a lasting impact emotionally. And so it's critical for us to understand that these type of incidents leave a lasting on impact on everybody involved. And the wounds are below the surface, but they are deep. Uh, they're deeper than we can see. And that's why it's crucial to establish a mechanism, a policy, a procedure to follow up and when appropriate, refer folks for treatment. Absolutely, Terry. You know, we've We've talked about the immediate interventions like CISD and one-on-one crisis intervention, but sometimes the effects of a critical uh, incident do linger long after the event itself. So some individuals will definitely require some long-term psychological support um, to really fully heal. Yeah, and that's where follow-up and referral come into play. And it's all about ensuring that anesthesia providers and their families have access to the support and the care they need, even beyond the acute phase of the crisis. Yeah, you know, I recall probably another 10 years ago, another traumatic event on a vascular case that uh, is highly, highly functional. Um, I'll just say OR team, because everybody in that operating room was really skilled. And this patient didn't make it. 
and these things happen, right? They throw embolisms, uh, et cetera. And uh, I remember going in and helping these individuals try to save this life. So we went through the, the process and whatnot. And I remember calling and checking up on Saturday, you know, midday and Sunday morning and Sunday evening before Monday started the next day of work. And and both the nurse anesthetist as well as the anesthesiologist and making sure that they were doing okay. You know, and so this is a mechanism that's a little bit like a safety net that catches those who may have slipped through the cracks or there's this lingering that they just need to know that somebody's either there just listening or is the depth to the resources that's available to help them navigate through some of these struggles that they may be ensuing. So it's a reminder that healing is an ongoing process. There's no shame. And I want to make sure every listener, specifically those that may be listening that have been impacted, that there is no shame in seeking help when it's needed. Yeah, and it's good to remember too and remind folks that it's just not about the individuals who are directly involved. Um, you know, these uh, emotional experiences extend to the families as well. Uh, you know, they're going to bear the weight of these critical incidents, just like the provider. And oftentimes they're going to need support to help navigate their own emotional journeys as well. Yeah, by establishing a follow-up and referral mechanism, we're not just offering a lifeline. We're extending a hand of compassion and understanding to that nurse anesthetist. You know, we're saying that it's okay to seek help. It's a sign of strength, not weakness, which, you know, I think has been the label that a lot of people uh, tend to feel like they've been uh, sort of put into uh, that category of weakness. And it's not. By understanding the importance of follow-up and referral, we can actually contribute to a more resilient and compassionate anesthesia as well as um, healthcare community at large. Yeah, absolutely. And this is probably a good time to explore a really powerful tool used in the healthcare setting, the briefing debriefing model. It's a method that plays a crucial role both before and after surgical procedures and its impact on patient care and the team is profound. And the goal of the process is to create a platform that breaks down communication barriers fosters openness among the healthcare team members. And it's all about building a sense of cohesion and ensuring that everyone's voice is heard. Yeah, the briefing phase typically happens before surgery. And it's like the calm before the storm. The lead surgeon acts as a facilitator in the operating room. You kind of think of this like almost a, a timeout. Using a debriefing checklist and starting with introductions leveling everybody in their role within the operating environment. But it's not all business. You know, an icebreaker question is usually thrown in to create a sense of camaraderie about the team. And, and you know, we doing a case today, big skull-based procedure today. And, you know, we do. It is serious. But as we go through the checklist, we make sure that we share our concerns you know, and how does that interrelate with the surgeon's needs, the anesthesia's needs, as well as nursing, as well as the scrub tech, and what are going to be the needs, you know, in the recovery phase when it comes to the recovery room. And so, you know, that camaraderie uh, among the team and, and, you know, Terry, I think about a book that was written by Marty McCrary, Unaccountable. Now, Dr. McCrary is a liver surgeon. Those of you out there that are listening may know him. I believe he's still at Johns Hopkins. 
Um, but he actually come to give a grand rounds at, uh, at the facility that I work at uh, years ago. And one of the things that, uh, you know, he remarked was the fact that when you're doing this sort of um, briefing phase is that everybody responds to each other by their first name basis. This hierarchy goes away so that there isn't this sort of silence because of, you know, I'm not high enough in the echelon or the hierarchy. And, and so when you foster camaraderie, conversations a lot more open, people are willing to speak up a lot quicker. The other thing that I've witnessed over the years is sometimes CRNAs perhaps may not have communicated or communicate as well or become a team member with nursing. That being the circulating nursing, those that are trying to get the room ready. You know, and I always try to make a habit of going in and saying, is there anything I can help you? And I'll pull the straps and I'll put straps on the bed. I'll help make the bed. I mean, I can do that. But it helps them. And it sort of levels things with, you know, your teammates uh, in that operating room. And, and they will actually look out for you. You know, I think when, when things get a little bit tough, they'll support you. So that camaraderie um, must be underscored and can't be overlooked. Yeah, you know, in this briefing phase that you talked about, is that that's really where things get interesting. You know, when the team is encouraged to share concerns openly that could influence the patient's care. And it's a little bit like a safety net that catches any potential issues uh, before they become major problems. And once the briefing is complete, the surgery gets underway, and the team is now in sync and everybody, as you said, is on the same playing field and able to express concerns when they come up. Yeah, now, you know, after the surgery, uh, it is then time for the debriefing phase again, uh, which we actually have implemented in our practice. You know, this is where all the staff in the operating room come together. They reflect over the course of the case. They voice, voice the concerns that they've probably had over the course of the case where, you know, things might get a little rocky uh, during the procedure and, and really important to have a conversation about that. Um, certainly our uh, surgical colleagues are good at it when the instruments are not working. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it's an educational tone uh, that uh, takes place and it incur, you know, sometimes it incurs encouraging remarks about the procedure, you know, job well done, you know, sometimes you know, there can be instruments that are not, uh, you know, functioning very well. And you got the circulating nurse that's uh, running around trying to get either a replacement or troubleshooting. You got the, the technician that's trying to, you know, provide an alternative so that that surgeon keep moving. Sometimes it's on us as far as anesthesia is, you know, patients may experience bouts of, of profound hypotension where we might need to manage to get them through a technically difficult part of the case. And so those sort of problem-solving foci are really aimed at identifying and discussing sort of the near misses, as I said, equip equipment deficiencies, which we see every day in that, you know, in the operating room. And these all lead to, you know, truly at the end of the day, patient safety issues. You know, you raise an interesting point, Gary. Surgeons are not shy about expressing their concerns <laughs> at the end of the case about what went well and, and maybe what could be improved. But, you know, that that initial conversation that took place at the beginning of the case that levels that playing field gives everybody permission at the end of surgery in that very brief 
debrief, uh, maybe just a couple of minutes to talk about what went well with the case and and identify problems. Um, and so it's just a short, short conversation, but it's incredibly effective in improving interdisciplinary communication and teamwork in the operating room and making sure, again, the patients are in the center of concerns. And so everyone should be uh, empowered to speak up uh, and express their concerns. It's a tool that's essential in the event that uh, a critical incident occurs, you know, Terry. Uh, you know, by fostering a culture of openness and continuous improvement, it really does help ensure that everyone's on the same page and ready to respond timely as well as effectively. Now, let's dive into a topic of uh, paramount importance, you know, and that's the development of a critical incident stress management program. We've alluded to a little bit of this, um, but we're going to start to transition a little bit more into sort of the meat of, uh, you know, this and, and a couple of more podcasts to follow. And it's really a conversation that holds the potential to profoundly impact the well-being of a healthcare provider, as we've stressed many times over the course of this episode. Uh, and the quality of that anesthesia provider or healthcare provider, if it were. Absolutely right, Gary. And currently, only a few facilities have established critical incident stress management programs uh, and policies. And many CRNAs report feeling underprepared to cope with the after effects of a critical incident. So it's high time we change the narrative and get these critical incident stress management programs off the ground and implemented. Yeah. Uh, you know, professional interventions in the workplace are not just beneficial, they're essential. They, they certainly serve both healthcare providers, anesthesia providers, and patients alike. Uh, you know, and by fostering that healthy coping mechanism, we actually improve work engagement of that nurse anesthetist. And in turn, that actually reduces stress-related illness. Things like abnes, uh, absences or, or sick calls uh, and the like, you know, now these people are well-prepared. They feel not only engaged, but they feel like there's compassion and there's a program around them to where they're not calling in sick. So where do we begin when it comes to establishing a critical incident stress management program or policy? Well, there are key elements to consider. And the first is the preparation component. This is all about providing education regarding critical incident stress and helping individuals understand what to expect when an incident occurs. That's right, Terry. You know, knowledge is power. And it's crucial that healthcare providers, as well as nurse anesthetists, have the information they need to navigate these challenging situations. So next up is the prevention component. And this involves training in relaxation techniques that can provide comfort and prevent the coping system from being overwhelmed, which can easily occur in sort of the high-stress environments that we work in every day in the operating rooms. And then there are the debriefing sessions. And while they shouldn't be mandatory, they are strongly encouraged for healthcare providers involved in a critical incident. Moreover, they should be available on request by any member of the healthcare team. And it's about creating a safe space for reflection and healing. And finally, Terry, there is interventions. These should be led by mental health professionals who are experienced in trauma and critical incident stress management. I'll tell you myself, I was unprepared to manage some of the depths of what our CRNA colleagues as well as other physicians and nurses needed. And their expertise 
you know, is invaluable in guiding individuals through the challenging aftermath of such critical incidents um, in the operating room environments. And by considering these key elements, we have paved a way for a healthier, more resilient, you know, healthcare community, operating room community, anesthesia community. And this is a good time to now delve in to the topic that's the heart of patient care. And that's disclosure of critical incidents. It's a complex subject with profound implications for healthcare providers and their patients. Yeah, and so communication is really the absolute key when it comes to both preventing and coping with critical incidents. You know, establishing open and effective communication with patients and their families is imperative. And it's heartening to see that a growing number of institutions and providers have embraced the concept of open disclosure. However, challenges still do exist as organizations grapple with the when, what, how, and why of disclosure. There are three types of disclosure, one being clinical, the next one being institutional, and then large-scale disclosure. And in this discussion, we'll focus on clinical disclosure, which deals with provider-patient relationships. You know, and historically, disclosure of critical incidents to patients was rare. And it was driven by concerns about how professional preservation and fear of litigation. But in recent years, we know there's been a significant shift in the national and international governments, accrediting bodies, and even healthcare institutions are taking measures to promote more honest disclosure. Yeah, federal and state governments have been acting legislation across the country to address the use of disclosure uh, in litigation. And we believe more is necessary to ensure that providers feel comfortable with disclosure. I, I think back to, you know, a facility I worked down on the border of Texas and Mexico, and uh, I remember a nurse one night, and I watched this, or so we were recovering a fresh open heart, who was bleeding, who was on, you know, uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors and epinephrine and the whole gamut, Right. And uh, I was watching this order go back and forth from the ICU to the blood bank and back and forth. And, you know, so they finally get blood and the patient's, you know, hemoglobin's tanking. And um, the uh, nurse uh, that was caring for this patient hung the blood and immediately recognized that the patient was having a blood uh, transfusion reaction. Well, lo and behold, it was the wrong blood type. And this was the Swiss cheese, right? And um, she had hung the wrong blood. And without doing root cause analysis, the individual, actually she was very adamant about self-disclosure, um, felt so bad that night when she went home, was calling in the next day saying that she was going to quit the profession entirely. And I'm like, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. But you know, the interesting thing is, again, uh, now, this was back in the 1990s. There was no support system in place. And what did everybody else want to do that were non-clinicians? They want to crucify this nurse. And I said, wait, 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 back up, back up. Let's look and map out the process. And sure enough, we found that, you know, in blood bank, there were some wrong movements over there. There was a tubing system. I mean, it just, and we really didn't have the advent of, of, computer ordering systems. It was all handwritten. And certainly, I would say there's some opportunity with some people's penmanship. And um, it led to this critical incident. And so, you know, I, I think 
um, this is an imperative, is to allow and enable people to be able to speak up when there are system problems because the best monitor of that is the individual that's rendering that care. Yeah, and so, you know, you could reasonably ask, why why disclose a critical incident or an adverse event? Well, you know, there are actually several really good reasons. Number one, patients have a desire and an expectation to be informed about the outcomes of their care. And they need this information to make informed decisions about their treatment. So, and then additionally, disclosures provide an opportunity for the provider to validate the patient's concerns, offer empathy, which can also benefit the healthcare provider as well. Yeah, some accrediting organizations such as Joint Commission have incorporated language into their standards now, requiring licensed practitioners to disclose unanticipated outcomes uh, to patients and families themselves. So there are some ethical and professional codes of conduct that also encourage disclosure, but they also emphasize the importance of protecting patients and attending to their needs um, as appropriate. Yeah, and it seems a little bit contradictory, but there's it's important to recognize, too, that disclosure may not always be appropriate. Now, research suggests that there are some situations in which it may not be in the patient's best interest. For example, if the patient's safety would be put at risk, or if there's a potential for abuse or neglect by a family member, or if there's a police investigation. Yeah, and, you know, there's the matter of disclosure and systems improvement. When a critical incident is disclosed, it often reveals issues that contributed to that event, like I shared about the blood transfusion. This information can be invaluable for incidents or root cause analysis led by the facility's performance improvement or risk management teams, which is really vital for systems improvements and preventing uh, future occurrences. And, And in many instances, this is really the crux of it. So, you know, there are barriers to disclosure that we really need to turn our attention to for just a minute. And fear is the most commonly identified barrier. Healthcare providers often equate disclosure with liability risk, leading to a reluctance to disclose due to fear of professional sanctions and litigation, maybe an unfounded fear. Yeah, you know, Terry, and another barrier is uncertainty about the quantity of information that should be actually shared with patients. This is partly because healthcare providers may not be aware of what information is appropriate for inclusion in the disclosure to that patient or family member. Given the lack of transparency in prior decades, it can be a little tricky. Yeah, it can be. And, you know, there's an issue, too, of the culture within an institution that can also be a significant barrier to adopting new policies and practices related to disclosure. You know, organizations have to assess and alter the facility's culture among health providers. You know, they provide the necessary support to embrace disclosure practices. And by understanding these challenges and solutions, we can contribute to a culture of transparency, empathy, and most importantly, continuous improvement. Now, let's transition into a subject of utmost importance, understanding and supporting colleagues who have experienced or witnessed a critical incident but can't cope. It's a topic that requires our attention and empathy. So when a colleague goes through a traumatic event, Gary, it's crucial that we know how to react and offer support effectively. Understanding the common reactions to trauma is the first step in helping that person work through the process. Yeah, and you know, these reactions, they may manifest in a variety of ways, but they typically fall into one of four basic categories, and that's psychological and emotional, 
That's number one. Number two is cognitive. Number three is physical. And the final one is behavioral. So let's start with psychological and emotional reactions. Colleagues who've experienced trauma may struggle with a depressed mood. They may experience irritability, a loss of interest or pleasure, and even resort to drug or alcohol abuse as a way to cope. And, you know, if all of us in nursing recognize these as symptoms of loss, they might feel inadequate, lonely, uh, they may lose trust in themselves and others, and they may lead to perceived indifference from colleagues. Absolutely, Terry. It's also common for these individuals, um, like ourselves, to experience emotions like anger, guilt, and frustration. Another common cognitive reaction is the inability to think or concentrate, which is a really big one, especially under production pressure. We're trying to send that CRNA back into battle, if it were, uh, in the OR to do more cases. You know, so colleagues may feel distracted and find themselves challenged to focus on their work. And that's no surprise. I mean, that's a reality of what we do every day. You know, our type A personality wanting to do good, but every time we fail or make an error um, or are set up to make an error, it hits every single one of us really hard. Yeah, and these emotional experiences that we've talked about, the anger and the guilt and the frustration, can manifest themselves physically. And so uh, providers can have trouble eating. They don't sleep well. Uh, they feel tired, maybe even have headaches. And the toll trauma takes on the body can really be significant. Yeah, and in terms of behavioral reactions, Terry, some colleagues might even exhibit hyperactivity while others withdraw and become less active. Social isolation, insomnia, or even excessive sleeping can also occur. These often are strong sort of triggers for a need to talk about the traumatic event and read information that is related to it, as we've kind of alluded to those steps in the above components of this podcast. And these haunting recurrent images or thoughts of the event, which can be triggered by unrelated or nonspecific events, can really be distressing. You know, patient uh, providers can experience hypervigilance is another common reaction uh, where the individuals become hyper aware of everything that they do. Kind of sounds a little bit like PTSD. And there's a deep desire to connect with others who have experienced similar trauma to maybe decompress that just a little bit. Yeah. You know, to our listeners out there that are listening to this podcast, we want to emphasize the importance of understanding these reactions and certainly offering support to our colleague during these challenging times. And, and that is going to be gauged with how much do you get involved or is there somebody that's better than you? But as long as you recognize it, you know, by being aware and compassionate, we can actually make a significant difference in the healing process for these uh, CRNAs or other um, colleagues in the operating room environment. So next we're going to broach the next topic that actually carries another great deal of weight, and we've alluded to it, and Terry just spoke about it, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And as you can see, we're starting to escalate from the event and process and policy to now the second victim and its implications for CRNAs and other healthcare professions. Absolutely, Gary. You know, PTSD 
is an anxiety disorder that can be experienced after witnessing or living through a dangerous or traumatic event. You know, the emotional and physical symptoms of PTSD often fall into three distinct categories. Yes, Terry, that's right. Uh, the first category is re-experiencing symptoms, and this can involve flashbacks, distressing thoughts, recurrent memories, and nightmares related to the traumatic event that just don't stop. They just keep coming back over and over. And it's as if the events actually continue to haunt the individual, sometimes for a lifetime. Yeah, it's just, um, it's an unrelenting re-experiencing of those symptoms. And then the second category is avoidance symptoms. Now, these may include staying away from places, events, or objects that serve as reminders of the traumatic experience. Individuals might also actively avoid thinking or even talking about it. Yeah, you know, and the, and the final category, and this one is a serious one, and it's the hyperarousal syndromes, and, and you need to... Everybody needs to listen sort of to the elements of this. This usually manifests as things like difficulty concentrating, irritability, trouble falling or staying asleep, feeling constantly on edge or tense. And it's, le it's like being stuck in a heightened state of alertness at all given times that is very uncomfortable to that individual. Absolutely. And this PTSD can affect individuals both personally and professionally. And for CRNAs, the workplace can sometimes be the source of trauma. Adverse medical events or critical incidents, for instance, can have a profound effect on one's mental health. Yeah. And as you've said, Terry, it's not just limited to the professional realm. Our military nurse anesthetists specifically, who served our country with unwavering dedication, not only can, but also are at increased risk of experiencing PTSD due to the unique challenges that they've faced defending the, this great nation. Yeah, there's no question, Gary. The weight of these experiences can be absolutely overwhelming. And it's crucial for everyone who recognizes these symptoms in themselves or in others to seek help. Yeah, and on that note, Terry, I want to kind of put out to our listeners, if you or someone you know is struggling today, we want you to know that the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs National Center for PTSD, uh, certainly for our service men and women, uh, is a valuable resource. Our service members and veterans in crisis can call the Military Crisis Line or Veterans Crisis Line for confidential support 24-7. And I'm going to read out this number, and I want everybody to pause if you need to get a pen or paper uh, or speak it into your phone. All right, that number is 1-800-273-8233. I'll repeat that again, 1-800-273-8233, extension 1. Now, if you're savvy, like our younger generation, you could text that to 838255. Again, you can text it on your iPhone or your Droid, 838255. You can also chat online with the veteranscrisisline.net backslash chat. So those are some resources, certainly... 
Um, you know, this crazy world is offering all kinds of challenges and uh, our service men and women um, are confronting some really crazy stuff right now. And, you know, when they come back home and uh, need that help, hopefully this is a resource that uh, you're willing to access or get your um, colleague access to. You know, absolutely. Gary and I want to emphasize the importance of seeking help and supporting one another during these difficult times. You know, PTSD is a battle. You know, it's one that can be faced and overcome with the right kind of help and understanding. Uh, so we're going to transition into the management of critical incidents and diversion in the healthcare setting. But again, we don't want to leave PTSD behind completely. And just as a reminder uh, to write that number down, the one 800 273 8233 extension one or text 828255 uh, for uh, veteran support uh, dealing with PTSD. Uh, but uh, back to the critical incidents and diversion in the healthcare setting. That's a complex subject too, and one that we must address with um, a sincere urgency. So leaders in healthcare have a significant responsibility to establish processes for rapid response to drug diversion and to cultivate a safety culture that supports its staff. Now, this means ensuring uniform and equitable management of providers with at-risk use. Yeah, and it all begins with creating an environment where staff feel safe and empowered to speak up promptly with concerns. It's that seeing something is saying something culture we often hear about and we want to in culture in every one of our workplace environments. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So what are the key elements in developing and implementing workplace policies and procedures? Well, it starts with applying a non-discriminatory and non-punitive fitness for duty policy that is consistent across all facility personnel, including employees, can contract providers, and even students in clinical training. And it's also crucial to promote and support mental and physical well-being and fitness for duty. You know, this includes offering emotional support for grieving and healing, whether it's in the wake of a colleague's death uh, in the operating room or even at home and fall or following an adverse event or even reporting a colleague for drug diversion or impairment, which is a really tough thing to do. Uh, and it sends ripple effects throughout the entire group. Uh, which we'll get into a little bit more uh, a little bit later. And it's important for our entire profession to deter drug diversion. Facilities should implement strategies to detect and prevent it, and procedures for reporting and addressing fitness for duty concerns must also be in place. Yeah, when it comes to responding to drug diversion or impairment observations, rapid action is essential. Following established workplace policies and processes definitely is critical. 
And it's equally important to adhere to the best practice guidelines for fair, safe, empathetic, and non-punitive intervention. And I just want to point out, Terry, you know, if people do not have these in place today, so to all of our listeners, I highly encourage you to go to the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology's website. They have policy templates, they have process, procedures, they have a wealth of information, everything from critical incident stress management to PTSD to all of those resources that we spoke to earlier, as well as these types of non-punitive interventions to help when we start to witness things like diversion. Transitioning individuals to addiction treatment providers Experienced in treating healthcare professionals is a key first step. Comprehensive evaluations are conducted to develop a plan for inpatient treatment and aftercare aimed at diseased remission and continuity of care. Yeah, you know, and, and these individuals, upon returning to work, creating that supportive workplace environment for the individuals is vital. This includes monitoring, obviously. Uh, and considering return-to-use mitigation factors. Now, those can run the gamut, which we're not going to list here, but uh, that can be complex, as well as offering peer support from colleagues. And I want to also point out to colleagues amongst or across the entire group. So um, it's not just the individual themselves. Their colleagues may be affected also. Absolutely. And education is a crucial role. And that education applies to leaders, to, to peers and colleagues, and to the person in recovery. And personnel should receive judgment-free onboarding education and annual ongoing training that encourages open communication. And this should cover a wide range of topics, including fitness for duty, self-care strategies, substance use disorder awareness, and the signs of impairment or drug diversion. Oh my God, that's an important one. You know, I think that's something that's so overlooked in many clinical practices. And it's not until the event happens when a diversion finally gets identified. And then you start looking in historical context. And there they are. The signs were there. Uh, they just may not have been uh, as obvious until you start looking, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, You know, ultimately, well-conceived and well-executed policies and procedures really help healthcare professionals, as well as CRNAs, restore their health, retain their license, uh, as well as career and identity. Uh, you know, this approach not only aids in the recovery of individuals, but it can also reduce the costs by decreasing the need for staff dismissal, recruitment, as well as replacement. Certainly in the anesthesia world when supply demand imbalances are enormous. You know, this is a critical topic that affects all healthcare professionals, specifically nurses, uh, you know, on a profound level. And the management of critical incidents and diversion and the vital role of alternative to discipline programs, which are growing in number. They're not pervasive across the United States yet, but they are growing in number, and that's a good sign. You know, absolutely, Gary. And, and the, one of the fundamental underpinnings of uh, alternative discipline programs is the recognition that substance abuse disorder and diversion is a disease. 
uh, and as such, uh, alternative to discipline programs are so important. And as of 2020, alternative to discipline programs have really become a beacon of hope for many healthcare professionals that are battling substance abuse disorders. In fact, over 40 states' boards of nursing have embraced this approach as a means to address substance use within the nursing profession and to promote nurses' rehabilitation and safe, emphasis, safe return to practice. Yeah, you know, what's remarkable about ATDs or alternative discipline programs is their ability to include a significantly high number of nurse participants compared to disciplinary-based programs. They also boast better long-term recovery rates, as well as program retention rates and overall outcomes. Why? Because, as Terry alluded to, that substance use disorder is a disease. These individuals need help, um, but they need a team around them to help them move through sort of the adversities, not a stigma. And I think there needs to be uh, uh, an acknowledgement of that. You know, historically, those that, you know, were identified for diversion or had substance use disorders um, were sort of relegated as as sort of the outcast and labeled. Uh, And we need to have an honest conversation about that and uh, try to get past that. You know, these programs, and I'm speaking to the ones, you know, like the ATD programs, they provide an opportunity for a lifeline for many. And uh, in my honest opinion, they probably save lives. Yeah, they, they certainly do. And, you know, we have been focusing our conversations on nurse anesthetists on nursing, but it's not just nurses. Uh, you know, for example, the Federation of State Physician Health Programs recommends a consistent uh, alternative discipline approach across all states for physicians and some additional healthcare professionals as well. So it's important to note that the Board of Nursing ATD programs can exhibit uh, significant variability, uh, but underscoring them is the f- recognition that substance abuse disorder is disease and punishment is not necessarily the best road to recovery. Yeah, you're right, Terry. The common goal shared by both FS. PHP and boards of nursing uh, is really to protect the public uh, receiving health care from any provider for that will um, with potentially impaired illnesses uh, like uh, substance use disorder. So it's a mission driven by a commitment to public safety and patient care. Absolutely. You know, and if you look at the history of uh, dealing with nurses with substance abuse disorder, it's a little bit concerning that nurses in particular have faced a higher rate of disciplinary actions related to substance abuse disorder compared to physicians, for example. Now, this discrepancy likely results in a greater stigma in nursing, uh, making it even more challenging for those who need it to seek and get the help that they require. Yeah, you know, it's a real difficult paradox, Terry. You know, research conducted by the National Council on State Boards of Nursing actually identified some best practices in ADT programs, including a five-year monitoring program, frequent drug testing, and mandatory support group meetings. And, you know, I know some individuals in the profession that have succumbed to this and um, have done quite well since the monitoring as well as the group support meetings. And, you know, interestingly, um, you know, those of you that are listening that uh, may uh, be in this predicament, um, 
which is fine. I also want to let you know that if you come to any AANA national meeting, so whether it's the Congress, whether it's the Fall Leadership Academy, whether it's the uh, ACDE or the Mid-Year Assembly, there is a group known as AIR, and those are individuals in recovery. And, you know, when I was AANA president in 2019, I made a point of attending those meetings at each of um, the four meetings. And, um, you know, I got a lot of positive feedback that it was, they were thankful that the president showed up at uh, that meeting uh, and listen to an area that's perhaps maybe overlooked. And uh, now I will say, as you know, Terry, uh, when they hand you your schedule, it's a little tight. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I made a point that uh, I'm not missing these meetings and I'm going to make sure that these people are not forgotten and um, that we do, uh, we're there to support them. You're absolutely right. I, I remember uh, when I was president that uh, all 25 hours of the day were spoken for. That's pretty tight. <laughs> but, you know, um, you know, looking back again at the National Council on State Boards of Nursing, is those, those folks are really working hard on developing formal guidelines for testing. And, and we believe, Gary and I both believe, that the evidence-based guidelines will provide all nursing professionals and encourage them to seek the treatment that they need. Now, I, I do want to turn our attention again back to substance use disorder, uh, a disease of the brain for which there is no cure. And I love what Art Zorling used to say. And, you know, if you ever met Art, uh, you know, he was a an incredible advocate for the recovering community. But I loved his saying, he goes, once you're a pickle, you can never be a cucumber again. <laughs> and it really speaks to the fact that Substance abuse disorder changes your brain wiring and your chemistry. And our aim is really to, to build and enhance the knowledge about substance abuse disorder, the risk factors, and the really vital importance of self-care. So we're going to explore the signs and symptoms and behaviors associated with impairment and drug diversion. And these are critical in mitigating harm for both patients and providers. I'm glad you brought Art Zwirling uh, to the forefront of this conversation because, you know, in the nurse anesthesia profession, you know, I know a lot of the uh, newly emergent nurse anesthetists don't know Art, uh, but this was a man with charisma, um, but was, was just a, a wealth of wisdom for those that uh, were struggling and uh, helped them navigate uh, sort of those demons, if you will. And again, you know, substance use disorder is not an isolated issue. It affects the general population as well. In the United States, nearly 8% of adults over 18 had a diagnosis of substance use disorder in 2019. Uh, what's even more concerning, about 4% of adults also have co-occurring uh, substance use disorder and mental health disorders. And this was um, pre-pandemic. You know, I haven't got the numbers here off the top of my head, but I know since the pandemic, it's even worse. Yeah, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. Substance use disorder and mental health disorders go hand in hand. Uh, they frequently occur uh, in unison. Uh, now, these numbers remind us of the immense challenge we face, Gary. You know, Samuelson and Bryson's report suggest that depending on the region, 
10 to 15% of the general population is prone to develop substance use disorder. And it's a battle that many individuals face in their lifetime and for their lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, for those of you out there listening, it's not just about alcohol. There's hazardous opioid use. There's the misuse of prescription opioids and illicit substances like heroin. Um, it affects almost 4% of the population. That's a little bit higher in the anesthesia provider population. And it prevents a significant threat to personal health, safety, and the risk of harm to others. Absolutely. You know, and despite the efforts to reduce opioid use, overdose rates increased by approximately 5% in 2019. And this underscores the risk posed by potent synthetic opioids. Uh, you know, and we see this in the news every day, the concern about uh, synthetic fentanyl coming from China. And it's a big focus in the news today. And so, you know, it underscores the need for engagement in treatment and recovery services remains critical. You know, and I, I want to mention one other thing. Um, in North Carolina, in the county in which I live five years ago, there were enough opioid prescriptions written for every man, woman, and child in Burke County to have their own prescription. And I didn't have mine. So I, you know, somebody had mine too. But, you know, this really does, uh, you know, and not to be glib, but it really underscores the need for prevention and treatment and recovery. So, so, so critical. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately, the pandemic year 2020 brought even more challenges. The drug overdose death rate even jumped to a staggering 30% over 2019. With, to your point, Terry, synthetic opioids uh, like fentanyl leading the way, along with notable increases in overdoses uh, from things like psychostimulants, like methamphetamines and cocaine. And when we look at healthcare professionals, research indicates that substance use disorder incidents among nurses aligns with that of the general population. However, in anesthesia, the risk factors and the potential harm are elevated because we have access to the most dangerous of all the drugs. That's right, Terry. You know, shift work and secondary trauma from adverse events, gender, PTSD, family history of substance use disorder, and comorbid psychiatric illnesses also contribute to the increased risk of um, substance use disorders. And, you know, anesthesia professionals with access to highly addictive controlled substances like the, the fentanyls and the morphines, et cetera, face even more significant challenges as we've alluded to. Yeah, absolutely. And opioids, inhalation anesthetics, volatile agents, IV anesthetic agents, you know, they're all readily available and can easily be diverted even in small amounts and maybe even in big amounts uh, over time. Even with controls in place, there are opportunities for drug diversion, creating a complex challenge. And, it, you know, it reminds me uh, of a, a physician I, I heard speak about uh, preventing drug diversion. And he said, basically, you know, we can build a better mousetrap, but the mice keep getting smarter. So it's really a challenge to prevent diversion at a, at a, um, at a, at a department level. Yeah, with access, it's no surprise to see that anesthesia professionals are an increased risk compared to other healthcare providers in, you know, in the hospital or in the operating room environment. You know, the accessibility to these potent medications just amplifies the potential for diversion. Yep. And that's why detection strategies 
Early identification and rapid response are essential to reduce the risk of diversion. You know, we really have to work together to ensure safety and patient care. That's absolutely right, Terry. Now let's begin by discussing the primary substances used by anesthesia professionals. Research tells us that alcohol and opioids are the most frequent used drugs among anesthesia providers, specifically nurse anesthetists. This is a complex issue, folks, with trends that vary across specialties as well as age ranges. And I also want to highlight and loop back to the events that may be the triggers that that get us all the way to this point of the conversation that we're having in these podcasts. And so, you know, Gary, opioids and non-opioid anesthetic use, and especially substances like propofol, is on the rise. The increasing use of propofol, which is not a controlled substance, is particularly concerning. We strongly recommend that facilities with propofol on formulary take measures to reduce the likelihood of its diversion. Right. And it's not just opioids, uh, to your point. There's also a concerning uptick in hazardous uses of inhaled anesthetic gases. Although this rate's much lower than other drugs, it's important to remember that data collection on drug use trends can be impacted by recognition monitoring as well as reporting practices. And, you know, there's a piece of software out there right now that uses artificial intelligence known as BlueSight. Um, so it may be in your facility, and what that does is exactly this. It monitors providers within a facility's utilization of ordering and utilization of various drugs across the practice. And those that have a little higher use rise up as far as an aggregate and may get called upon for monitoring practices. And so don't be surprised if you are a heavy user of uh, some type of agent that's out of the norm from the rest of the group that you may rise to the top for better or for worse, uh, and be asked to uh, sort of, um, whether that be testing or, or uh, uh, an explanation. So, Well, if you're doing something different than everybody else, it's going to stick out. And I think that's, you know, the key issue. So Gary, let's take a look at the, the high risk of substance abuse disorder among anesthesia professionals, because that's really uh, kind of where we're focusing our attention. Now, the relationships between substance abuse disorder, employment problems, mental health disorders, and suicide are pretty well established. And access to legal drugs can lead to unintentional overdose or facilitate suicides, making it a matter of the utmost concern in our community. Yeah, among anesthesia professionals with, with substance use disorder, death is a risk. Whether it occurs during the first presentation of the disorder or following a later return to use. A study of Australian and New Zealand anesthetists found that 11% fatality rate was linked to drug-related issues with propofol, of all things, implicated in all drug-related deaths. Wow, that is really alarming. You know, and estimates may vary, but the risk is evidence across healthcare professionals. An estimated 10 to 15% of all healthcare professionals have reported at-risk use of alcohol and other drugs at some point in their careers. Up to 20% of working nurses exhibit signs of substance abuse disorder. Wow, that is wild. Oh my God. 
unbelievable. I mean, that's a lot higher than the numbers I remember 20 years ago. So important that young anesthetists or nurse anesthesia professionals, especially earlier in your career, appear to be at increased risk with everything that's going on in the world today, all trickles down. And, and stress plays a significant role here, as stressors can lead to unhealthy substance use and eventually substance use disorder. It's a challenging situation that really demands all of our attention as well as all of our support looking out for our peers. And, you know, as we said earlier, the rate of substance abuse disorder among anesthesia providers is not tremendously different than other healthcare providers, but it's worth noting that anesthesiology residents are twice as likely to die from substance abuse disorder than residents in other medical fields, just because of the lethality of the drugs that we have access to. And maybe young male anesthesia practitioners have three times the rate of suicide due to substance abuse. So these statistics, they're just alarming as the Dickens, and they highlight the urgent need for intervention and support. Yeah, and research also shows that the risks associated with mental health and substance abuse or use among healthcare providers, for instance, physician anesthesiologists are more likely to return to the use or overdose and complete suicide than other physician counterparts, but they are less likely to self-report substance use disorder. Wow. And when it comes to nurses, over 6% of nurses' deaths by suicide involve medication diversion from the workplace. That's a stark reminder of the challenges we face in addressing this issue. And so it's not, you know, difficult to understand that there's a level of stigma, employment concerns, potential licensure restrictions, and legal implications make it difficult for anesthesia providers uh, really to disclose their struggles. This contributes to an underestimation of the problem, which is probably a lot larger than what we think it really is. Yeah, and so as we continue our journey through this complex issue, you know, we intend and we hope to shed some light on the scope of the problem, kind of dispel the stigma and contribute to the development of an evidence-based risk mitigation strategies and treatment guidelines for substance abuse disorder. Yeah, and so Terry, you know, we've had some conversations. We're going to bring on some uh, individuals uh, across these podcasts of critical incidents, PTSD, diversion, and substance use disorder, and and have them share their experiences um, so that you know, hopefully, our listeners can um, understand sort of the struggles and the realities of of. Uh, what we confront as anesthesia providers on a day-to-day basis and how we really need to be uh, proactively addressing these topics uh, from a professional perspective as well as knowing where those resources are. So I'll kind of leave the experiences for um, some of our uh, visitors that are going to visit us on the podcast uh, coming up. So, you know, uh, fortunately, uh, or maybe unfortunately for, for Gary and I having been uh, both clinicians and uh, had the privilege of being in leadership, we do uh, know um, individuals who have uh, expertise and experience 
uh, in dealing with substance abuse disorder, PTSD, stress, critical incidents, and so forth. So what we want to do is, for uh, as we close up shop here, is we want to thank you for joining us today on this episode of Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Uh, we've had a, an enlightening and crucial discussion about substance use disorder among anesthesia professionals, and I uh, hope you'll stay with us. Absolutely, Terry. And we will hear from some of these brave individuals who will share their personal journeys and experiences with PTSD and substance use disorder. Their stories will remind us uh, that this issue can affect any one of us in our field of anesthesia. Boy, that's, that is for certain. You know, the thing to remember is it can happen to anybody. Uh, it's uh, often the best and the brightest who succumb. Uh, we must never lose sight of that. So it's not just about acknowledging the problem. Really, it's about creating an environment uh, that's supportive where those who face substance abuse disorder can seek help without fear of judgment or repercussions. Yeah, and we've also discussed the factors that can c contribute to substance use disorder among anesthesia professionals. And that's including the demanding nature of our work day-to-day -day and easy access to potentially addictive substances. You know, things like production pressure. One of the things that I tell my peers, and, and it's not limited to just anesthesia, you know, you, you, you can see the individuals that are ramped up, they're feeling pressured, and they want to race to get things started and going. And then all of a sudden you start to feel pressured. I want every single one of our listeners to be empowered, to be able to put their foot down and and you could actually use Joint Commission's terminology that you're going to stop the line. And stop the line is you're going to slow the things down because you do not want a safe, unsafe environment to ensue because you're succumbing to production pressure. Always feel empowered to say we're going to have to slow things down. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's about patient safety and your mental well-being as a provider in a high-stress environment. Absolutely. And in terms of substance abuse disorder, we have emphasized the importance of early intervention, support, and awareness to prevent and to address substance abuse disorder effectively. Yeah, you know, and Terry, I think by sharing these stories and insights uh, from uh, some of our other peers that will be on the show, we hope to reduce the stigma surrounding substance use disorder, PTSD, and hopefully encourage open conversations within our anesthesia community. Absolutely. And it's so important to destigmatize substance abuse disorder, uh, to remember that it is a disease and there's help available and recovery is possible. If you or someone you know is struggling with substance abuse disorder, please seek assistance from healthcare professionals or support groups. The help is out there uh, and it's possible to get back to a healthy uh, existence again. Absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you for being part of this crucial conversation. Let's continue to support one another and work towards a healthier, safer, and more compassionate future of our anesthesia profession. And, and before I turn it over to Terry, those of you that are listening and like the podcast, please go back to the podcast and give us that five-star rating that we deserve, as well as please share it with your colleagues. And it doesn't have to be limited to the anesthesia profession, other healthcare providers, push these podcasts out because there may be somebody else that maybe is a non-healthcare provider or a non-anesthesia provider that might benefit from these resources. So please 
feel free to share these podcasts uh, for the benefit of others. Well, thank you, Gary, for being with me on this journey today and allowing me to be your partner in this episode. And until next time, take care and remember that together we can make a positive change. Absolutely. Thank you, Terry. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.